Father, we are grateful for your presence with us. And we ask that you would open our hearts this morning so that we can hear from you. Amen. Several months ago, I, uh, I read this little book by Tim Keller called The Prodigal God. And it really challenged me. Um, and it challenged my thinking with regard to this, this uh, parable that we're talking about. And also, as I read, it reminded me of my friend Carlos Gildemeister. We've been friends a long time and we know each other's stories. And in the parable, Jesus begins by saying a man had two sons. And, and Carlos had sort of the younger son, prodigal type experience of coming to faith. He came to faith late in his teens. And I know that many of you also have that same, same kind of story of encountering and understanding God's love for you at a later time in your life. And because of that, you have a clear sense of the contrast, the, sort of the before and after picture, what my life was like before I knew Jesus and what it's like now. And I envy that a little bit, right? I don't have that. My own experience is more like that of the older son. Now, my mom tells me that I gave my life to Jesus as a young child, like four or five years old. And I'm sure that the life of crime that I gave up at that point you know, I'm sure that was significant and all, but I, I just don't remember it. And I've always lived with the awareness of God's love and the understanding that Jesus' sacrifice made possible my relationship with the Father. And I just wonder sometimes what it would be like to know that contrast. Now, Soren Kierkegaard said that if you live in a place where being a Christian is the norm, it's an accepted, the accepted way and the first thing that you have to do in order to help someone become a Christian is to help them lose their Christianity, right? You have to separate the trappings of religion from the core meaning, what's important. In his time, if you walk down the street and you, and you stop somebody and you said, hey, are you a Christian? They would say, of course I am. I, I'm a Danish citizen. I, I was born here. I go to the state church down the road and I even sing in the choir, right? But, but we know, don't we, that simply being born in a certain place, like Houghton, being born here and attending Houghton Wesleyan Church every week, and even singing in the choir, those are not what makes us a Christian. Now, in addition to the Prodigal God book, there are two other books that, kinda, uh, that I read in preparation for this sermon and it informed what I'm doing, and I recommend these highly. This is Henry Nouwen's book, The Return of the Prodigal Son. And both The Prodigal God and this book are in our library here if you want to read them afterward. And um, this little book called Telling the Truth by Frederick Beekner is a fantastic book, all easy reads, and I highly recommend these uh, to you if you want to do more reading afterward. Now, we just read this passage, so I won't take time to do it again, but I want you to see an important detail here. In the first three verses, Luke is giving a description of what's going on. He says the tax collectors and the sinners had gathered to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were there and they complained about it. They said, uh, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. And so Jesus responds to them by telling them these three parables. So there are two groups of people here in front of Jesus on this bright, dusty, hot, first century Palestine day. And they exist at two ends of the religiosity spectrum, if that's a word, the moral spectrum. There are people who know they are far from God. They're the sinners, the addicts, 
the prostitutes, the criminals, the politicians. And on the other end of the spectrum, there are those who've grown up in the church. They've gone to the best schools. They're pastors and priests. They're professors of religion. They've never had so much as a detention or a parking ticket or any other blemish on their personal moral record. These are people who know they are doing what they're supposed to do. Now, just out of curiosity, where would you put yourself on that spectrum? (laughs) And you don't have to say it out loud. Uh, And I know that we can't really reduce people to a number, right? We're more complex than that. But just for the sake of argument, let's say it was a scale of 1 to 10. 1 being the most lost sinner you can think of, and 10 being the most moral, best spiritual person you can, you can think of, where are you? What's your number? So anyway, there's two groups of people. And I think it's interesting and it's important to remember that it's the complaint from the Pharisees that prompts Jesus to tell these stories. In the first two parables, Jesus is emphasizing God's joy when a lost one is found. The shepherd searches for the lost sheep, and the woman searches for the lost coin, and they demonstrate that God is in the business of pursuing the lost and celebrating their return. But it's in the third parable, the parable of the lost son, that the story takes an unexpected twist. And this parable is a drama in two acts, and the first act is the well-known prodigal son. As we just read, the younger son comes to his dad one day and he says, in effect, Dad, I am tired of waiting for you to die so that I can get my money. Give me what's mine. I am out of here. It would be hard to think of a more insulting, demeaning, arrogant, painful thing that a young man could say to his father. And more surprisingly, Instead of a beating or a, or a summary execution or a phone call to the lawyer to write him out of the will, the father, at inexplicably, at great cost to himself, does what the younger son asks. He, he must have had to sell off a large amount of holdings to give him that cash, and he did it. Now, Beekner describes what follows in this way, and I love how he says this. He says, the prodigal son goes off with his inheritance and blows the whole pile on liquor and sex and fancy clothes until finally he doesn't have two cents left to rub together and he has to go to work or starve to death. He gets a job on a pig farm and keeps at it long enough to observe that the pigs are getting a better deal than he is and then he decides to go home. Now there's nothing edifying about his decision. There's no indication that he realizes he's made a donkey of himself and broken his old man's heart. No indication that he thinks of his old man as anything more than a meal ticket. There's no sign that he's sorry for what he's done or that he's resolved to make amends somehow and do better next time. He decides to go home for the simple reason that he knows he always got three squares a day at home. And for a man who is in danger of starving to death, that is reason enough. So he sets out on the return trip. And on the way, he rehearses the speech 
that he hopes will soften the old man's heart enough so that at least he won't get the door slammed in his face. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That'll hit him where he lives, if anything will, the boy thinks, and he goes over it again. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Trying to get the inflection right and the gestures right, and just about the time he thinks he has it down, the old man spots him coming around the corner below the tennis court and starts sprinting down the drive like a maniac. Before the boy has time to get so much as the first word out, the old man throws his arms around him and all but knocks him off his feet with the tears and the whiskers and the incredulous laughter of his welcome. The boy is back. That's all that matters. Who cares why he's back? And the old man doesn't do what any other father under heaven would have been inclined to do. He doesn't say he hopes he has learned his lesson or I told you so. He doesn't say he hopes he's finally ready to settle down for a while and will find some way to make it up to his mother. He just says, bring him something to eat for God's sake. Bring him some warm clothes to put on. And when the boy finally manages to slip his prepared remarks in edgewise, the old man doesn't even hear them. He's in such a state. All he can say is the boy was dead and he's alive again. The boy was lost and he's found again. And then, at the end of the scene, what Jesus says is, they begin to make merry. Merry of all things. They turn on the stereo. They break out the best scotch. They roll back the living room rug. And they ring up the neighbors. They're obviously not Wesleyan. So as in the two parables that precede this one, the lost sheep and the lost coin, the father throws a party. This younger son has rejected the father and humiliated him, left home and wasted fully one half of the father's considerable goods. And all of this in a fruitless and empty search for himself. And even as he returns, the younger son's motives for coming home may be a bit suspect. Now one says there's repentance, but not a repentance in the light of the immense love of a forgiving God. It's a self-serving repentance that offers the possibility of survival. The father, however, seems not to care one fig about motives, about money, about his own dignity, or the previous offense. He says, it's time to celebrate. This son of mine was dead, and he's alive. He was lost, and he's found. And so the party begins. It's a fantastic picture of unconditional love, of redemption, of grace, God the Father welcomes home the lost sinner into his kingdom. One person that I talked to this past week said, which of us hasn't pictured ourselves as the lost son in this this story at one time or another? And I think God's grace towards sinners is the point of the parable except for one small caveat. This is not a message for the sinners that are in Jesus' audience that day. This series of parables is aimed directly at the religious leaders the Pharisees and the scribes, the elder brother types. So let's move on to act two, the elder brother. Now when the prodigal returns, the elder brother is exactly where he's supposed to be. He's out in the field, on the tractor, doing the work of the father. And he's driving along on the tractor and he suddenly becomes aware of a sound that's been intruding on his consciousness. Is that music? He stops the tractor and he listens. 
That's definitely music. So he drives the tractor over to the hill that overlooks the ranch house, and he looks down, and sure enough, there are cars all over the lawn. It's clearly music going on. There's, the grill is, up, is fired up out back, and there's something big cooking on it. There's something. What is going on? So he flags down a passing ranch hand, and he says, Hey, what's going on down at the house? Your brother has come home. He's back. And your dad threw a huge party. He's even, we're even uh, cooking up that beef cow that we've been saving for your graduation. <laughs> you know, from seminary. Oh man, anger. Verse 28 says, the older brother is angry and he won't go in. He drives that tractor down to the barn and he parks it in the barn. And as daylight falls, he sits down on a bale of hay in the barn and he, and he mutters and he complains and he won't go in. He remains on the outside and we say, wait a minute. What just happened here? The younger brother who is rebellious, who is admittedly sinful, who has dubious motives. He's part of the kingdom. He's in the father's party. And the elder brother who has never disobeyed, who has in his own words slaved for the father. He's out. What is this? In contrasting these two stories, Jesus is flipping on its head what we know about sin. Tim Keller says nearly everyone defines sin as breaking a list of rules. Jesus, though, shows us that a man who has violated virtually nothing on the list of moral misbehaviors can be every bit as spiritually lost as the most immoral person. The elder son is excluded from the father's party, from the kingdom. He excludes himself. And why does he do it? What's his reason for not going in? He gives it in verse 29. He says, all these years I've been slaving for you and I have never disobeyed your orders. It's his perfect moral record, his accomplishments, his shiny new master's degree. These are the things that stand between him and God. His words are very telling. The father calls him son, and he calls himself slave. He's rejecting relationship with the father in favor of his list of accomplishments. And so it turns out that the two sons are not all that different after all. The younger son wants the stuff, the blessings that the father can give him, and so he asks for it. The elder son wants the blessings the father can give him, and so he works for it. Both want the blessings of the father, but neither seem to care very much about the father himself. Now again, I imagine this scene and Jesus standing in front of the sinners who are described in the first part of the chapter. And, you know, the morally bankrupt and they're sitting there. And it's interesting because at the end of chapter 14, Jesus is telling parables. In his very last line, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And in the very first line of chapter 15, it says, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. And so Jesus is standing there looking at this group of people, and they're looking up at him, and they're drinking in his words, because like Peter, they know, where else can we go? You have the words of life. And off to the side, standing under the shade of that building right there, there are the scribes and Pharisees. And they're close enough 
so that they can hear what's being said, but not so close that they'll be associated with anyone in that particular crowd. And they're muttering, and they're complaining, and they're angry, and they're refusing to go in. And Jesus hears them, and he launches into the parables, and he talks about the shepherd who loses the sheep, and he leaves the 99, and he pursues the sheep, and he brings it back safely and has a great party to celebrate. And the woman loses her coin, and she pulls out all the stops. And this is a coin that has both sentimental value as well as monetary value. And she says, we're going to find this thing. And she searches and searches until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls in the neighbors, and they have a party. And I imagine Jesus, as he's telling the story, slowly shifting his orientation until he's now looking at the scribes and Pharisees. And he launches into the parable of the lost son. And he says, he tells the story of the lost son. But which son is it that's lost here? Which son is being pursued? It's not the younger son. He's come home. He's in the party. It's not the people who are sitting here for the purpose of listening to Jesus. They're right where they're supposed to be. The shepherd pursues the lost sheep. The woman pursues the lost coin. And the father, again, flying in the face of dignity, of tradition, and of honor, goes out into the field, in verse 28, and pursues the elder brother. And I imagine Jesus now standing with his hand extended to the Pharisees and saying, Come into the kingdom. He's appealing to the the people that are trying to kill him. And he's saying, give up your pride. Release your faith in your heritage. This life of joyless duty and arrogant sort of moral drudgery. And embrace relationship with the Father. I think we are less inclined, at least I know I am, less inclined to see myself in in the elder brother I mean, it's, it's not a pretty picture, right? We, but I think that if we're honest, we can sometimes see his marks in our life. His footprint can be seen there. Especially, I think, if we've grown up in a church and we don't have a good sense of the contrast, the before and after contrast. Nowen says there are many elder brothers who are lost while still at home. And it's a lostness characterized by judgment and condemnation, anger and resentment, bitterness and jealousy, These things that are so pernicious and so damaging to the human heart. And the elder brother shows up in us in ways like this. When we see, for example, very clearly the sins of others. The elder brother says, this son of yours who has wasted all of your money on prostitutes. When we see others' sins, and we're quick to note our own pretty good record in comparison. And in time, that line of thinking brings us to the point where we even question whether or not certain people or certain people who have committed certain sins should really even be part of who we are. We just, we just prayed together, forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. As we forgive our debtors. Not, not sort of while we're attempting to do that, but in the same way, to the same degree that we forgive our debtors. The elder brother's inability to forgive produced in himself the inability to be forgiven. He excludes himself. 
When we sit in judgment on others, we exclude ourselves from the love of the Father. But when we relinquish our need to sit in judgment, we free ourselves from that weight. And we can fully embrace the forgiveness that God the Father offers to us through Jesus. The elder brother also shows up in us connected to our sense of fairness and achievement. My father passed away several years ago after a a long battle uh, with a painful illness. And uh, watching him go through that was really painful. It was hard at times. And there were times when I was angry with God. I remember questioning the fairness of it all, telling God about my father's long record of serving him and You know, why is this, how is this fair? But do you see the implications in that line of thinking? God, all these years we have slaved for you. The elder brother's theology of merit-based salvation forced him to be stuck outside the party. He said, that's not fair. Your grace is not fair. And so despite the father's pleas for him to set aside his self-righteousness and to be welcomed in, to be loved, to be part of the kingdom, he refuses. And at the end of the story, you know, I really want there to be a verse 33 because we don't know what happens. As far as we know, he's still sitting in the barn. We don't know if he ever comes in. C.S. Lewis said uh, in The Great Divorce, he said, in the end there will be two kinds of people. Those who say to God, your will be done, and those to whom God says, Your will be done. Now, the younger brother here is a beautiful picture of redemption. And human beings are designed for relationship with the Father. And rejecting that design results only in empty brokenness, isolation, pain. God's ridiculous, unreasonable, all-encompassing, unconditional love for humans who turn to him leaps off the page in stark neon clarity in the first act of this parable. And if you are far from God, God is waiting for you with open arms. For the elder brother in us and among us, God is calling you and I to give up our need to sit in judgment on people around us, to forsake our merit-generating good works and our faith-brutalizing theological accuracy, to let go of our stellar moral record, all of which have the potential to simply become attempts to manipulate God. Instead, our Heavenly Father is calling us to warm, joyful relationship with Him. He says, Rejoice with me when the lost sheep is found. Celebrate when a sinner comes to repentance. Let's have a party. As in the parable, the Father's hand is extended to you. What will you do?